Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. Today, we've got a good show coming here. Yeah, today we're going to be talking with Chris Robinson, the founder of Robinson Ag Marketing, about the sell-off that continues here in the grain trade in just a moment. And then in segment two, we're going to touch base with the friends at Minnesota Soybean Growers Association. They've recently pressed a lawsuit against the state of Minnesota because that state would like to follow California's guidelines on clean air and well, the soybean growers think the biofuels have something to add as well. And then in segment three, we're going to dig into EPA's newest rules on carbon emissions from power plants. Robert Bryce, journalist and energy consultant, will be joining us. We're going to take a look at how these rules could imperil rural electric generating capacity as we look down the line here in the 2020s. Before we get to all of that, however, let's take a look at these markets. Chris Robinson, Robinson Ag Marketing, joins us now. And Chris, this sell-off from yesterday continues. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a disappointing certainly forty eight hours. Um, I'm just sitting here looking at the at the screen. You know, in February we were a dollar higher. You know, so it's typical to these markets they go up the escalator. It takes a long time to rally, and when they correct, they always correct violently. Um, and so that's kind of where we're at right now. They can correct violently, but then of course they can come off those lows. And Chris here just today, while we've been watching the trade talking, we have seen a pretty impressive reversal, particularly in the soybean trade. What's going on? Well, you know, we I think they pushed out a lot of people, especially when the November beans took out $12, went down and hit $11.74. These are very technical levels. What does that mean? There's a group of people out there that they just trade supply and demand and basis and what's Cargill doing. There's other people that just look at charts and they'll look at a, a chart of soybeans the same they would look the same way they would look at a chart of General Motors. And they don't care what the underlying right. asset is. They just right. want to see what the movements are doing. Right. And they pick these levels. And sometimes uh, those levels are self-fulfilling prophecies. Everybody's looking at them, bulls and bears. Just today, if you look at a new crop corn, we hit this 490 level. Why is that significant? Well, here's a little inside baseball for you. You go back to the contract lows in 2020, the contract highs this time last year. 490 is one of these retracements. It's a 62% retracements. This goes back to a 700-year-old Italian mathematician named Fibonacci. I know it sounds crazy, but sometimes these are the things that uh, attract movement in these commodity markets. And hopefully we can get away from this and start to trade supply and demand as opposed to chart points. But the last two years, I think with the increase of people trading electronically, you've got more emphasis on these levels. And we just saw it again as in July corn. July corn went to a big round number. What number was that? 550. So as we're sitting here talking, okay, 550. And then that's the way these markets work. They go to a level, they trade there for a while and see if it holds. Um, but yeah, it's been a disappointing. If you've been a bull for the past you know, three months, I've had a lot of people tell me, oh, it's oversold. It's oversold. You have mm -hmm. to buy it. You have to buy it. If you've bought it and haven't had an exit strategy, it's, it's been a painful month. Who wants to lose a dollar a bushel? on anything. Is the bull attitude gone for grains over the summer? Chris, I mean, looking at, at Keteris Paris, everything stays the same. Is the bull attitude gone from, from your brain and the grains? I don't think so. I think you still have people um, holding out. Is this 2012? And again, it goes back to the charts. People start looking back in history and saying, all right, has this ever happened before? 2012, we did the same thing. We went lower from the beginning of the year all the way till June. And then Mother Nature, uh, you know, had a surprise for everybody. So it's going to take, unfortunately, nobody likes to wish for weather problems, but it's going to take weather problems to create a rally. Why? Because the USDA has just told us we've got huge crops coming that carry out. That's what started this last little push, yeah. the USDA. And it's funny. The report was on Friday, Thursday, Friday. It wasn't too bad. And we've started to see this lots of times. It takes two or three days after the report. Lots of times, 20 years ago, they would do it all the day of the report. Mm -hmm. Now they kind of hold their cards back. And then, um, and then, so you've seen that here. So the market's readjusted. We've tested these levels. Hopefully we're done. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a difficult month. It has been a difficult month. And it's been difficult, Chris, as well, for wheat growers. We continue to talk about that. There seems to be very little... Uh, bullish momentum in the markets despite the bullish what would appear to be fundamentals in the trade we've had 
bullish or friendly fundamentals for a year now. Everybody's been saying, you know, it's oversold, it's oversold. When a market gets bullish news and doesn't rally, that's always a bad sign. And it's always a, a sign for you to be like, hmm, you know, I may have an opinion, but maybe I need to protect my revenue. And that's really what we do. At the end of the day, it's not about predicting the future. It's about protecting revenue, keeping yourself in a position so when prices are good, you can sell. Um, I, you just brought up KC Wheat. I'm just looking at a chart of SEP. You know, on May 2nd, we were at a two-year low. We were at seven, what, 7.33. In three weeks, we rallied at $1.80. We hit nine bucks. Everybody's like, boop, game on. Here we go. And then in 24 hours, we dropped 60 cents. So these markets are very frustrating, very difficult to trade. Um, and again, what do you do if you're a producer? Well, when you see a $1.80 rally, uh, think about making a, a sale. And if you don't want to make a sale, do a substitute sale with a hedge. I mean, it's really, that, that, that's, it's a difficult decision to do because people are afraid that they're making the wrong decision. Um, at, some day, at some point, though, you've got to kind of bite the bullet and say, all right, I'm going to reward this rally. And now with these options, you don't have to commit to that price. It's not like you have to sell futures and lock yourself in. With an option now, and now that you've got the weekly options, the monthly options, you can do some risk management that used to cost you thousands of dollars to do several years ago. Um, so I would say this, for anybody out there that's not familiar with them, um, you know, take some time, educate yourself. Uh, but there is a really good risk tool for farmers and producers. Chris, options pricing. We've seen some volatility come back into these grain markets. Is it driving those option prices up at least noticeably? <laughs> Yeah, because when you have big days like this, when you have big down days, the puts get very, very expensive, right? And because everybody wants the downside protection, vice versa, the calls get very, very cheap. When we were down, we just talked about being at two-year lows a month ago. You know, there are people that I work with that are uh, bakeries and so on and so forth. They're always buying commodities. They don't like it when prices go higher. They looked at those two-year lows as a way to buy calls. The calls were very, very cheap. So depending on what your risk is, you, you need to get your risk on paper. And, you know, this is an evolving market. Is this 2012? Are we going to bottom out and then blow up? I, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't bet on it, but I also wouldn't bet against it. And, and I think that's the way to, to, uh, to, to, to move forward in this market. We know what the worst case scenario is. We're looking at it right now. So it's like <laughs> things can only get better. And then there yeah, are there some strategies where you can sort of, to use a better uh, turn of phrase, you can stop the bleeding. Yeah, you okay. can with a, with a cheap put or, or a, God forbid you make a cash sale. If you have to make a cash sale because your banker calls you up and say, hey, this you got to make a move today, bite the bullet on there. But then look for an opportunity somewhere in a week or so. Say, you know what? I just sold 10,000 bushels. Maybe I want to talk to my banker and say, can I buy a cheap call? And you know, and then that way, if we do have a, a market like 2012, you may have made a bad cash sale. But you can reown it for cheap. And I'm talking about five, six, cents, 10 cents. You don't have to go out and spend 40 cents on a call. And then what? why would you do that? Because we don't know if this is 2012. This is 2012. Yeah. Uh, Christmas time, we're going to be looking back and saying, boy, we were sitting there in Illinois talking. And, and that little did we know. Right. So keep your risk on paper. That's the story, folks. We've been talking with Chris Robinson of Robinson Ag Marketing. Chris, how can folks find you on the Internet? Just look me up, Chris Robinson, Robinson Ag Marketing. That's the simplest way. Fantastic, folks. And stay with us. We'll talk with our friends at the Minnesota Soybean Growers Association when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. 
At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer Camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer Camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. Get on board. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. board. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues here today. We're talking markets there with Chris Robinson earlier in the program. Now we're going to take a focus to what we do with those products that are coming off of our farms, particularly soybeans. Minnesota soybean growers have been working to ensure that the air quality in that state remains top-notch, but the state maybe isn't giving them all the due they are deserved. Joining us now to talk about a lawsuit pending between several groups and the state of Minnesota over their move to adopt California air quality regulations is Joe Smentek. He serves as the executive director for the Minnesota Soybean Growers Association. And Joe, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk a little bit, Joe, if we can, to start with what the state of Minnesota is trying to do. Can you fill us in on what they'd like to see done with their clean air requirements? Yeah, Minnesota recently adopted the it's what we're calling the California car rule to make it so that every auto dealer has to have uh, electric cars on their lots. Um, which by their measure would significantly decrease the amount of uh, liquid fuels that our farmers produce that would be um, sold in the state and really are giving uh, lots and lots of financial benefits to these electric cars and electric car uh, companies uh, in the face of uh, some of the biofuels industries that we have right here in the state. And Joe, let's talk about that because as you mentioned, the biofuel industry, this push towards renewable diesel, we have seen a huge surge in interest among Northern Plains as the the folks in your state and the Dakotas have continued to grow more and more soybeans. Can you fill us in on what that processing sector for for soybeans look like in Minnesota? Do you guys have capacity up there in that state? Yeah, absolutely. We're crushing uh, just tons and tons of soybeans here. We can produce more oil. We can produce more biodiesel in this state. Um, there's no doubt about it. A renewable hydrocarbon diesel plant is, just went up in North Dakota, uh, primarily because of the availability of soybean oil in this part of the country as a feedstock. So there's a lot of room to produce more of these fuels here. Uh, those fuels have been shown to be the primary workforce behind California's reduction. So really a lot of opportunity for some of these biofuels to reduce carbon and reduce carbon today. We can do it this afternoon. We don't have to wait until technology is ready. 
So, Joe, to that end, of course, Minnesota soybean growers, along with several other groups in the state, have pushed for a lawsuit here against the state and their move towards uh, the California air quality rules. Can you fill us in on how that's going? This has been a, a tough process, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We watched another lawsuit done by the auto dealers in state court and state laws with their Administrative Practices Act is so set up against uh, somebody trying to challenge an agency uh, that we decided to go a little bit different route. And we're challenging in federal court with a, a number of other groups, as you mentioned, really looking at um, the different authorities granted by Congress um, to EPA and then what a state can can and can't do in some of those laws. Um, you know, there's been pretty clear-cut uh, direction from Congress with the RFS that they want more and more renewable fuels. And an action like this done by an agency, done by a state with approval of an agency, frustrates that intent. And so really trying to get to the core of which one of these conflicting rules, whether it's an RFS, a California air waiver, or a fuel standard, a gas mile, you know, per mile uh, standard, which one of those actually is the one that uh, trumps and it's our opinion that it's the rfs and this demand that congress has said for more biofuels all right so really the question to the courts is can the state of minnesota effectively trump the rfs joe am i understanding it correctly that's pretty much our question and uh, we don't think they can we think that it's congress is pretty clear that they want more biofuels out and that a, an agency can't allow a state or anybody else to frustrate their intent well, Joe, of course, we have seen this uh, gaining steam on the West Coast. California, as you mentioned, Colorado has some similar programs. Minnesota, what's the timeline that they proposed initially? Was this supposed to go into effect here yet in 2023? 2024 in model year is the first year that they want this to pro they want it uh, for. But, you know, California is moving uh, pretty aggressively on some other bands than under their waiver uh, even going as far as diesel truck bans uh, coming up here in the next decade. And, uh, you know, we think that that's just not something that's right for Minnesota. Our fuel market is different. Our economy is different. Our farm economy is different than theirs. And we don't like the path they're going down and, and want to make sure that Minnesota doesn't go down a path that's really going to hurt consumers and our farmers. Joe, I'm really glad you brought up that diesel truck issue. As of now, is Minnesota planning to adopt those same timelines on phase-outs of diesel trucks? Could we be looking at 2030, 2035, no more diesels in Minnesota? Well, that's the, you know, the, it's the big question. I don't think anybody intended that, but we, when you start on this California plan, you either need to follow California or you need to follow the federal government. So um, that's where we're trying to break that chain and try to get Minnesota off that, that path of California. Uh, really having them look at what our fuel market is, where does our fuel come from, what is our diesel demand, what is our diesel supply in the state. Uh, it's something they didn't slow down and look at during this rulemaking and uh, didn't want to look at, according to the state courts, they didn't need to. Uh, so now uh, you know, our only rec recourse here is to go to federal court and try to get those questions answered. Joe, it's fascinating that you brought up the question of where does our fuel come from? Because as we think about that California air resources rule, of course, almost all of that fuel in California is coming from outside the state. But renewable diesel, biodiesel in Minnesota, I've got to imagine that's a different story. Do you know how much renewable or biodiesel is produced in the state of Minnesota? We're producing over 80 million gallons of biodiesel in the state of Minnesota every year. And most of our diesel and our petroleum diesel and our petroleum fuels come from in-state refining. We don't have the pipelines in that California has. So any reduction um, from this electric cars mandate, uh, that any reduction in our fuel supply, even for gasoline, will end up just by lowering our refining, um, just the refining that's done in the state, lowering our diesel supply. Uh, and so we're working on a study right now to show that and show what that impact would be under this rule. It's something we think is very important for the state to know. It's something they didn't know and didn't consider when they passed this rule uh, and something that hopefully the federal court will make them look at. Hopefully, indeed. Now, Joe, you mentioned that there have been some other legal challenges to this so far. And I'm curious, from Minnesota Soy's perspective, who else has signed on? Who else is working with you guys specifically to target this uh, legislation? We have a couple different coalitions for clean fuels. Um, a lot of different ethanol groups and some of the ethanol producers are in this, in this group with us um, suing the, on these standards. Really, you know, looking at the same thing we do for biodiesel on the ethanol, corn ethanol side.
And I think it's, it's I want to make sure we're clear. Minnesota soybean growers aren't saying Minnesota can't have a clean fuels policy. It's just that this policy is missing the mark with regard to congressional intent. Do, do I have that right, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we're, we're not, um, we don't have our heads in the sand. We know electric cars are the cool new thing. We see them coming. We didn't oppose any of the funding going on in the state legislature for them now. Um, we don't, uh, we're not opposed to cutting carbon. I mean, we've been doing it for 20 years with our state mandate. Um, what we've been opposed to is every time we've tried to get higher blends, the, the state has kind of fought us. Every time we've gone and looked for dollars for blender pumps, uh, the state has kind of fought us. So what we're saying is, you know, we've, we've been trying to do this here. We think there's a great way to go forward using things like Optimist technology. We could put 100% biodiesel in every state fleet uh, truck. We could be plowing our snow like they are in Iowa and New York with 100% biodiesel and reducing carbon right now. And, and the state has fought, that, fought us on that, um, has been slow to adopt those. We think there's plenty of things we can do with biofuels today cut carbon today and not wait until electric vehicles or electric snowplows are ready. Joe, is the state or are there any folks in the state government coming around or back around to the importance of biofuels here in this environment? I think there's a lot of the people in the government that do recognize that. I mean, Governor Walz himself has been a big champion of biofuels. I, you know, I think this was a policy done by somebody at PCA um, without full information about fuels came from uh, without full information about what this would do to some of the industries. I think it sounded good. Um, I think there's some ramifications of it here that um, they're not stopping to consider. So it's really not about the people in the state government. It's more about the state's authority to do this kind of thing, because I do. we do definitely have some champions of biofuels. Our commissioner, Tom Peterson of Agriculture, has just been phenomenal to work with on, on biofuels issues. Uh, throughout his career. So we definitely have some champions and I'll take the time here to look at this lawsuit and uh, find a different path forward. Joe, you mentioned take the time to look at this lawsuit. If we've got listeners out there who are curious about how Minnesota is battling these challenges, where can they go to learn more? You know what? We got a lot of information on our website at mnsoybean.com so that they can stop by our website and check out more information about uh, what's going on, and we can, we'll definitely be updating it. Uh, you know, we're just in the initial pleading section now, so a lot more information to come on this. More to come. These conversations will heat up as those legal battles ensue this winter. Our thanks to Joe Smentek, the executive director of the Minnesota Soybean Growers. Joe, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. And folks, stay with us. We'll talk the EPA's new proposed rules for emissions of power plants with Robert Bryce when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Welcome to the 2023 corn sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. The grains all started at the bell, lower double digits. Soybeans, though, have started to make a move and firmed up into positive territory. Corn is down slightly as paired back some of the losses overnight, while wheat has continued its descent lower. That's most likely some pressure from the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which is back on officially for another 60 days. Now, day two of the Kansas City Wheat Tour found results even worse on the first day. And in fact, one tour participant summarized the day by saying it was tough to find wheat that wasn't zeroed out and that could be measured. The day's average yield was 27.5 bushels per acre. That's down from 37 in last year's drought-shortened crop and below the five-year average of 44.7 bushels per acre. 
Now, abandonment will likely be higher than currently forecast by USDA, yet all of this may already have been priced into the market. We know that wheat from Eastern Europe is making its way into the United States, which argues that U.S. hard red winter wheat had become overpriced relative to local supply and demand fundamentals. So as bad as it is, the bulls still find themselves lacking any argument for now. However, it does leave world milling supplies tight, keeping a large focus on potential problems with the crop in Argentina, Australia, Canada, Russia, and Kazakhstan. China's special envoy was in Ukraine yesterday to meet with Ukraine's foreign minister, who conveyed to China that Ukraine will not accept any peace proposal that involves the loss of any territories, which in the past has included Crimea. Ukraine is demanding the immediate withdrawal of all Russian troops from their territories as a precondition for any potential negotiations, which for Russia is a non-starter. China's envoy now travels to Europe to meet with select leaders before ending its trip in Moscow. Now, European leaders are remaining solidly behind Zelensky's plan as a working framework for a political solution to the war. So there is really little hope at this point that China will be successful at working out a peace plan. This is AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. 54. So basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going. <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. The conversation continues today, and we turn the focus to something that's in the background of all of our lives, vital for functioning here in a modern society, and that's electricity. Over the past week, we saw EPA unveil some new rules for the power generation industry, and those rules have have some industry participants concerned, to put it mildly, about where it could leave the industry. Joining us to, to talk about this important issue is Robert Bryce. He's an author, journalist, most recent book called A Question of Power, just came back out in uh, paperback, rather, and he's the host of the Power Hungry podcast. Robert, thank you so much for joining us here today. Always happy to be with you, Mike. Let's start with the basics, Robert. Last week, EPA announced some new rules. Fill us in. What is the industry concerned about? Well, it's not just industry should be concerned. And just a quick bit of background, uh, Mike. So exactly, well, it was on May 4th, the members of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission testified before the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, and they warned them about the reliability of the U.S. electric grid. And they said, in fact, the words that they used, unprecedented challenges to the reliability of our nation's electric system. Um, and then just exactly a week later, May 11th, you had the uh, the Environmental Protection Agency issue a proposed rule that could decimate the reliability of the electric grid. The new rule requires a 90% reduction in CO2 emissions from existing hydrocarbon fuel generators, so coal and ga natural gas generation. Well, as you know, you know, in rural America, across agricultural lands across the country, they're more dependent on coal-fired generation than other parts of the country. Well, this could require the closure of, of, of all of the coal plants in the U.S. unless they use carbon capture and sequestration, a technology that isn't being used at scale anywhere, or they use hydrogen, which, of course, just doesn't really exist at scale anywhere either. So this is an enormously important rule, and uh, the, the EPA is going to be sued over it. But still, the, to me, the, the, the issue here, Mike, is just that this bureaucracy, this administrative state, would issue a rule like this that is so clearly detrimental to the reliability of our most important energy network 
and 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 would do it without any understanding, any discussion, anything talking with the with FERC or anything else about the reliability of the grid. It's very worrisome. It is. It is. And of course, when we think about grid reliability, Robert, for those of us who aren't in the power generation world, what counts as an unreliable grid? Is it disruptions in power, surges of power, literally blackouts and brownouts, all of that? What is it? Sure. Unreliable. All of, sure. All of that. And as a friend of mine said, if the if the electricity isn't reliable, it's not affordable. And so what have we seen across the U.S. in the last few years? Well, dramatic increases in the numbers of blackouts that are happening across the country. And how are consumers responding? Well, they're buying Generax. I mean, Generac, the, the company that makes these standby generators, their stock has been skyrocketing over the last few years because their business has been so good. But what we're seeing, I think, Mike, what you know, matters, particularly to rural America, you know, a lot of farmers, a lot of ranchers, they're served by cooperatives and cooperatives are more dependent on coal-fired generation in general than the investor-owned utility. So these rules are particularly bad for co-ops because it could really hurt their generation fleet. But I think it's also important to understand it's 90% reduction in CO2 emissions from the electric sector. That's it's the, the amount of generation that we produce or electricity we produce from coal and natural gas is around 2,300 terawatt hours to put per year. To put that in perspective, it's more than 10 times the amount of electricity we now produce in the U.S. from solar and about six times more than we get from wind, three times more than we get from, from, uh, from nuclear. So uh, I mean, these are just incredibly large numbers. And for the EPA to issue this kind of rule without any understanding, any concern about reliability, again, I think it just goes to the kind of the, the, how, how out of touch uh, these regulators are when it comes to real world issues. Well, I think that's a great point. And we've seen similar concerns from different industries over the SEC's climate disclosure rules, the concept that we don't have the tools to do the thing you want us to do. Robert, you mentioned 90% reduction in CO2 emissions from fossil fuel fueled plants. What's the timeline that they have in there as of now in this proposal to get that 90% reduction accomplished? Well, the the rule as and it's a complicated rule, right? But the 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 requirement is for them to cut their greenhouse gas emissions by ninety percent between twenty thirty five and twenty forty. So roughly fifteen years from now, seventeen years from now. Well, in terms of you know the life of a power plant, those are measured in decades. So I mean, this adds what I think the other key issue here, Mike, in addition to the issue of litigation, because there's no doubt that the states and or the utilities are going to sue the administration and the EPA over this because it's such an overreach of the administrative state. But it, it creates more political uncertainty, more, more, more regulatory uncertainty in the utility sector, which is already facing a lot of uncertainty. And further, I think it's going to add yet more fuel to another conflict point, which I've written about extensively and is on my substack, robertbryce.substack.com, talking about the amount of, of uh, the all across rural America. I was just in Iowa a few weeks ago, I was in South Dakota, Rural rural Americans fighting back against the encroachment of big wind and solar projects because they don't want them in their neighborhoods. So this adds the the problem. There are many problems with this EPA rule, but uh, the the impact on rural America, rural Americans, farmers, ranchers is really quite significant. And uh, your your listeners really need to be paying attention. Robert, is the comment period open on this rule as of now, or where do we sit? I suppose in the the bureaucratic roadmap of something this big taking effect. I think the comment period has opened for 60 days. I was talking with someone about it. Oh, yeah, we have 60 days to comment on something that could ruin the electric grid for years to come. It's like, you know, this, you know oh, hurry up and tell us how bad this is now. Um, I think that that comment period has started. Um, I, I, I need to double check that. But uh, again, this is an enormously consequential uh, uh, rule. And you can follow up. I have links on my the piece I, I have on my website. The, e, the, the story is called EPA v. The Grid. And it's again on my substack, robertbryce.substack.com. Robert, but you also mentioned that we are seeing abnormally high amounts of grid disruptions regardless of this rule, or at least before this rule was even proposed. And I'm curious, what's happening in the industry right now that's causing that sort of unreliability for large parts of the Ameri of America? Well, this that's a great question, Mike. And, and Commissioner James Danley addressed this. And one of the reasons why is because the federal government, as through the production tax credit and investment tax credit, is providing such massive subsidies to wind and solar. So those those subsidies are distorting the marketplace for electricity. And so it's it's uh, if you're a, a electricity developer, you you want to build generation, you're going to 
most likely build wind and solar because the tax credits are so lucrative. Well, that means that existing thermal plants that burn coal or natural gas are being retired prematurely. And this is a point that the FERC commissioners made uh, during their testimony on May 4th. And interestingly, uh, Joe Manchin, of course, the Democrat from West Virginia, um, brought up and asked each of the commissioners, can the existing grid be reliable without coal? And every one of them said no. And so, you know, again, this is the the the, the this massive district dis, distance between the people who live and work in the real world, who make things, build things, grow things, and the policymakers at places like the EPA who are, are completely disconnected from that world. Absolutely. Robert, you know, as we think about the push towards renewable uh, electricity sources, Europe oftentimes appears as though it's leading the way. And I've seen a number of headlines coming out of those northern Scandinavian countries that, given the events over the last two years, maybe they need to double down on fossil fuels. Norway expanding some more acres. Are, are we seeing a return to normalcy potentially in, in where we generate power from? Well, a return to normalcy. Geez, I don't know what that even means. Um, <laughs> what you, you mentioned what's happening in Europe. I mean, Europe and California both provide the examples of what not to do. I mean, look at California. They push this renewable energy uh, 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 push more than any other state. And what do they see? Incredible uh, uh, increases in costs and dramatic reductions in reliability of their grid. So uh, there are clear examples of what not to do. And California and Germany and, and the rest of Europe are, are the leading examples. And our, I guess my question then is, are folks looking at these examples of what not to do, Robert, and are we learning any lessons? Are we seeing regulators encourage nuclear or look at cleaner burning fossil fuel plants anywhere in the world? Well, yes. I mean, there's no doubt, Mike, that there's a big push back on uh, for nuclear energy around the world. A lot of interest, a lot of money, a lot of momentum behind uh, new nuclear here in the United States and in Europe. Uh, but let's be clear, this won't happen quickly. And that the uh, the things that need to happen, including regulatory reform at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is a major roadblock here in the U.S., as well as uh, fuel supplies. Now, we, Russia has been a big supplier of nuclear fuel for, for years. Uh, the U.S. is going to have to figure out a way to get uh, fuel from some other vendors and besides the Russians. So um, I'm adamantly pro-nuclear. It's getting more uh, more attention. Uh, but I think in the meantime, you know, generators are building, they're building renewables and they're building gas. And most of the time that'll work. But a couple of years ago here in Texas, we saw it didn't work so well. The winter storm, Uri, we had, you know, statewide uh, blackouts because of this over-reliance on weather-dependent renewables and just-in-time natural gas. Absolutely. And as we look out to the future, folks, our reliance on electricity isn't going anywhere. This is a crucial resource. It has to be uh, available for us when we need it. Robert, you cover these details in detail, of course, in a number of different forums. Tell our listeners if they want to dig in deeper to what's happening here with the grid, where would you advise them to go? Well, first, uh, buy my book. <laughs> you don't have to read it, Mike. You just have to buy it. Uh, it's out in paperback, available on Amazon and all other booksellers. It's called A Question of Power. It's my sixth book. I'm very proud of it. And then uh, also my Substack. I'm focusing all my writing. I've been in journalism for more than 30 years, and uh, I write, I'm write. i only writing on Substack now, robertbryce.substack.com. Fantastic, folks. Check all that out. This is a huge issue. It touches a lot of us in ways that maybe aren't top of mind for most of us when we're going about our daily business. But when that power is gone, folks, we notice it. Our thanks to Robert Bryce taking the time to talk to us today. Check out that Power Hungry podcast. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a million, Mike. And folks, stay with us. We'll cover a few more news stories that have been impacting the world of agriculture here when AOA returns. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation, powered to perform. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength a champion of courage, an advocate for hope. You are not alone because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, 
retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. We, we, we are the Foundation, foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. It's the most important race of the year. The one where winning is everything. Where the decisions you make now can and will define your entire season. The yields you're dreaming of are either won here or lost here. This is Corn Sprint 2023. You win it with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Specially formulated to make nutrients more available during the most critical uptake periods and strengthen root systems for better absorption. It's the kind of edge that gets your crops all the way to the finish line with greater yield potential, greater return on your fertilizer investment, and just plain old greatness. So win the corn sprint. Include Biopath in your early season fertilizer application. Contact your local retailer or visit cornsprint.com. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Back 
continues today and as we talked at the top of the show with chris robinson of robinson ag marketing it is a tough day in the grains corn and soybeans have recovered most of their overnight losses the wheat market bouncing back somewhat from its overnight lows but still down in the doldrums kc hard red wheat down 25 to 26 cents here this summer and that's in spite of some more bullish news coming from that kansas wheat tour kansas wheat association reported that yesterday so this would have been wednesday's tour they made 276 stops at wheat fields across there now they're in the western central and southern kansas region they did dip into some of the northern counties in oklahoma and of course now we are into drought country uh, they noted earlier that the this was the day that the tour really saw the extent of the drought the calculated yield for the cars on the stops on wednesday was for 27.5 bushels per acre now there's an important caveat to that number, and that is that that yield is an estimate for those fields that will make it to harvest. And there are fewer and fewer of those as time goes on. Large numbers of abandoned fields were seen. Scouts were also uh, making use of the late season formula provided by the USDA NAS, counting weed heads, number of spikelets, and number of kernels per spikelet. And that's how they have calculated that final yield for yesterday. Now, the tour is continuing on Thursday, and uh, I believe Thursday or Friday we'll get the absolute total look at what the expectations are for wheat production there in Kansas. Now, of course, those Kansas growers are dealing with hopefully the tail end of this three-year drought that has dragged on across the West and, of course, the Southern Plains, but they're not the only folks still grappling with what to do next. Three major states, California, Arizona, and Nevada. Last year, while the extreme mega drought in the Southwest was deeply entrenched, those three states got together for negotiations over what to do with water from the Colorado River. It has been nearly a year back and forth, those three states working together with the federal government to try to come up with a plan, and their goal is to voluntarily conserve a major portion of the river. Now, they're not doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. These states are looking for about a billion dollars in federal funds that they're looking to use to buy out water rights holders. There is a consensus emerging, and uh, the Biden administration and these three states are looking to conserve about 13% of their alloc allocation of river water over the next three years. They want to do this to replenish the reservoirs, and it's worth noting that both Lake Powell and Lake Mead have been rising, those two major reservoirs down there on the borders of Arizona, Lake Mead's water level is up 4.6 feet, and Lake Powell also up a little bit. It looks like we're up a few feet in Lake Powell with more expected as that water works down the line. Now, we don't have the details of this expected compact here over the Colorado River. More will be coming out slowly, and it will be interesting to see because there are still some thorny issues as reported by the Washington Post. Uh, notably, we've got to work through several rights issues, looking at agriculture and drinking water, and then there's still decisions need to be made in those states as to who's going to see their water allocation cut, who's going to be paid for the cut in their water allocation, and who could just lose it. Those are, as of now, the three buckets those states are wrangling with. We've spoke, spoken quite a bit on this program with our friends at the American Soybean Association with market analysts about the growth of biofuel demand, specifically renewable diesel, biodiesel-based demand. And there is a ton of enthusiasm for that across the ag sector. And I think it's worth noting that there's a ton of enthusiasm for renewable biofuels outside of ag as well. Liquid fuel producers are looking for something that can lower their carbon impact, but also keep vehicles and trucks running around the world. And for at least one major fossil fuel company, that includes biodiesel. BP yesterday on Wednesday did an interview with Reuters, and uh, their executives mentioned that they are considering buying stakes in biofuel feedstock producers and investing directly into farming ventures to secure supplies. The concerns from BP are that the massive amount of demand for biofuel is all going to coalesce here in the next seven to 10 years. And Feedstock utilizers, fuel producers who don't have direct inroads to the feedstock suppliers, and in this case, it's going to be animal tallows and soybeans, 
they're not going to have access to it. And this has BP concerned because their plan over the next 10 years is to build five biofuel plants. And they want to process what they call, quote, unloved waste feedstocks. That's where they're incorporating some of those animal tallows, some of that food waste. But in addition, I've got to imagine it's going to be predominantly soybean oil going into these plants. And they note that premium biofuels right now are two to four times more expensive than today's fossil fuel-based uh, fuels. And those costs could rise as these producers are struggling to meet feedstocks in a very congested global market. And they think BP does believe that they are going to have to develop some sort of an integrated supply chain. They know that's our business today in fossil fuels, and we think that's going to be the winning way in biofuels. So folks, be watching. Maybe there will be a farmland sale near you, and BP will be a bidder on a piece of farm ground. We've got some news out of Australia. We've talked a lot about the impact of China on the global stage. Massive buyer of commodities, not just from the United States, but from nearly everywhere around the world. But over the past three years, they have been not been buyers of commodities out of Australia. They have been in a tiff. The Australian government obviously has, has called out the Chinese government over some uh, human rights violations over the past several years. And the Chinese government responded responded by refusing to do business with Australia. They're wavering on that. Here in the past six months, we have seen Australia resume imports of, excuse me, we've seen China resume imports of Australian barley. Yesterday, it was announced that Australian timber will now be making its way back into China. And the Chinese uh, ag minister is expected to make a trip to Australia. This will be the first time they've really worked to reconnect since that TIFF four years ago. And it will be interesting to see how this develops. I think it is another play on the scene that China is looking to make friends around the world to find a diverse network of suppliers as geopolitical tensions continue to heat up, particularly with Xi Jinping's eye on Taiwan. Stay tuned, folks. All of these factors move the ag industry, and we'll talk about more of them tomorrow, not least of which is fertilizer. Josh Linville will join us on the show. We'll talk about how prices are moving as farmers get into the field. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow for more AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. There are a ton of social networking websites, but one stands apart for a very special reason. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. In the U.S., 22 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant, most of them for kidneys. If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, visit MatchingDonors.com, home of the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. MatchingDonors.com. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration.